This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The 80s were here in full force. America used its military might to strengthen the international presence of the country. The more time Jack spent in America, the more he loathed their leader, Ronald Reagan. Star Wars was, uh, was a horrible thing. Star Wars would have resulted in, in an imbalance. And the idea was in those days that mutually assured destruction kept the peace. And Star Wars was going to mess this up completely. So I absolutely hated Reagan at the time, that's for sure. <laughs> because Reagan was an idiot and he was a warmonger. And he took his religious beliefs into running a country. You've been quoted as saying that you do believe deep down that we are heading for some kind of biblical Armageddon. The prophecies down through the years, the biblical prophecies of what would portend the coming of Armageddon and so forth. And the fact the that the KGB was acutely aware of the language that Reagan was using on a public stage. And they were concerned that Armageddon was, in fact, a real possibility. Together that portend that. But no one knows whether Armageddon, those prophecies mean that Armageddon is a thousand years away uh, or day after tomorrow. Clearly, I was with the folks at the KGB when it was really, really hot, when we were talking about that Ronald Reagan is a dangerous fellow who might actually start a war. In 1984, the Soviet Union had decided to boycott the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, matching the Americans, who had done the same during the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Today's other top story, the Soviet Union's announcement that it will not take part in the Summer's Olympics in Los Angeles in 1984, as in 1980, political competition between the two superpowers, between East and West, is now taking precedence over competition between athletes. The games will go on, but what kind of games will they be? The diagnosis, AIDS, always fatal. In almost always confined to four high-risk groups, homosexuals, intravenous drug users, Haitian refugees, and hemophiliacs, but a virus that may be on the move into the general population. It was this incurable, horrible disease that primarily affected homosexuals, male homosexuals, and some rather uh, famous figures like Magic Johnson, for instance. Homosexuality in communist countries was forbidden by law for a long time. There was a very, very strong anti-gay sentiment, and it was almost like schadenfreude, the joy in, in something bad happening to those people. And this is how we discussed this in Moscow. This was just socializing, idle talk. This is the decay of Western society, and this is not going to come to us. They would not have let somebody in uh, into the country if they had known this person was infected with AIDS. Stockpiles of nuclear weapons were only getting larger, and Ronald Reagan was here to win. Let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man, and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of... The best defense, it seemed was a better offense. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding, and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. 
I knew that the Soviet Union wasn't an evil empire. We weren't evil. We were good. Inside the U.S., the threat of illegals was still real, and the hunt for illegals like Jack was still on. Reagan's America was here to win this battle, too. I began my career May 19, 1975. That's when I was sworn in and went through training at Quantico. My first assignment was in the Greenville, South Carolina Resident Agency. That's Oliver Hall, former FBI agent who worked to hunt down illegals in the 70s and 80s right in the heart of New York. Out of the Columbia Division, and I spent three years there, and then I was transferred to New York to the Soviet Division, and we had over 600 FBI agents uh, assigned to the Soviet Division. Now, let me put that in perspective. The Atlanta FBI office, I don't know what its complement is today. If I had a guess, and that's all it is, if I had a guess, the entire state has maybe 200 FBI agents. And in New York, the Soviet Division alone had over 600 agents. The satellite division, the, you know, the satellite countries had about 400 agents assigned. And the criminal division had, I want to say, about 200. So uh, that was a major emphasis uh, to neutralize, identify uh, Soviet spies, intelligence, their intelligence services, the KGB and the GRU. When I got to New York, anybody who is not an accountant was assigned to one of the foreign counterintelligence divisions. Under Reagan, the battle against the Soviet Union was taking place on the world stage. But the United States had a huge and very secret Soviet division. Anchored in New York as the hunt for KGB officers and illegals intensified. Hall recalls the time working in this secret division. Pete O'Donnell, he and I were classmates in New Agents Training, and Pete went straight to New York, and he was assigned to the squad that I ended up on because Petey got me on that squad. And if you were going to work Soviets, that was the squad to be on. It was a squad that handled the KGB counterintelligence offices and would try to identify illegals like Jack. And Petey made his career working foreign counterintelligence, particularly the Soviets, and he became an expert. Petey, like me, we liked uh, working the streets. My, okay, full name is Peter O'Donnell with the FBI 27 years and retired as an Army officer prior to that uh, in Vietnam. Did about 12 years in New York City. Pretty much 95% of that was on the, uh, the what they called the illegal squad, which was uh, back in the days of the Cold War. That was a premier squad. That, that squad had pretty much three uh, assignments, uh, uh, 65 cases, which were espionage cases where our, there might be an FBI agent or CIA agent through sources is working for the Russians. So uh, we would be doing that investigation. Then we'd also be assigned, our squad was assigned to KR, which is the counterintelligence branch of uh, the KGB, which was the part of that espionage uh, investigations that the KGB is doing, try to uh, recruit uh, Russian immigrants to come over here and work for them. They were assigned to penetrate uh, our intelligence services. 
And then there was the illegal support branch or the what we would call the line end branch. And that was trying to uh, identify uh, illegal, the KGB illegal officer or officers. Despite the massive size and scale of the undercover efforts Hall and O'Donnell were part of, tracking down an illegal like Jack could feel like a near impossibility. How do you catch a ghost if you don't even know what one looks like? Many illegals, you know, they go through an awful lot of training, five or six years of uh, one-on-one training many, many times. They're not in like a, an FBI class at Quantico or a you know, KGB officer's class uh, you know, there's not five or ten of them bouncing around. It's one-on-one for years. They're very, very uh, resilient. Uh, they're super trained in uh, radio transmissions and surveillances. So you could put them anywhere. You could put them in uh, South Africa or uh, Atlanta, Georgia. They'll survive. Jack had disappeared amongst the millions of New Yorkers. He had settled into his life in America and had started to let his guard down just slightly. He was growing tired of the constant communications required by his KGB contacts back in Moscow. Where was this all going, and how would it all end? Despite the constant sparring in the media between the United States and the Soviet Union, Jack was still confident he could stay hidden. I had a string of successes. So once you get to that point, it's not just raw arrogance. It's a feeling that, you know, you're blessed. You, you're just going to get through no matter what. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Chapter 8. The Choice. Despite having a wife and son back in Germany, Jack had yet another female in his life. A woman from Guyana named Penelope. Jack had placed a personal ad in the Village Voice and the two began dating. She came from a big family uh, altogether. Her mother gave birth to 13 children, and she was the second oldest, uh, Penelope. And she, you know, she was at the time staying at a friend's house. She was safe because she couldn't have possibly known that there was some not very American aspects to my story, my personality, my behavior, my overall character. I didn't have to explain anything. I, I didn't have to explain why I wouldn't be available on a Saturday because I was busy writing letters and secret writing. She was completely non-demanding. 
She had worked as a flight attendant for an airline that made regular stops in New York, and on one of her regular shifts, she decided to stay for good. But then she sprang a surprise on me. One day, uh, she asked me this odd question, and I didn't realize wh where that came from. She, she asked me, could we still see each other if I get married to some, some guy? And I said, now that's really weird. What, wh why would you want to do that? Well, I'm really illegal in this country. For me to stay, I need to get married. And I really like you, but... So I have this, this guy who I can pay some money, and he will apply for a green card on my behalf after we're married, and when it's all over, I get a divorce. She told me that she already tried it once, and that guy took the money, they got married, and then he did not file for her. So she divorced him. Now I'm thinking, my God, a poor girl. This is going to happen to her again. So, and I liked her. So I said, let me take a look what I can do. The promise was not, I love you, I want to get married to you, I want to live with you. So I went to the library and, and looked at the process of, you know, what happens when, when you uh, get married and file for somebody, get a green card. And she also introduced me to one of her friends who had just gone through something like that. And he explained to me what it's like, the steps. The documentation that I need is a birth certificate and a driver's license. I got it, no problem. I got a job, programmer. I think I can do it. So I said to her, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I, I don't want you to get hurt again, so I'm going to marry you. And I made it quite clear to her. I said, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy. I'm not the marrying kind. That, again, it was my sense of invulnerability, and then I could do anything. So we got married in a civil ceremony in a courthouse in Queens, and the friend that she lived with was the witness. We went to a restaurant, had a meal, and that was the end of that. We were married. Jack was now married to two different women in two different countries at the same time. He was living yet another lie, this time as a bigamist. Then she went back to live with a friend, and I went back to my place because she couldn't be with me. She could not be with me. I had too much secret stuff to do in my apartment. Uh, and sometimes I was rather rude. She wound up there on a Thursday night at 8. I says, you got to go. Because at 9.15, I was moving the dial to my frequency. Jack's apartment was ground zero for his operation. He had all his encoded radio communications with Moscow there. It was essentially off limits to everyone except himself. One day, Jack came home to a surprise. Someone had broken into his place. One day I, I come home and there was signs of somebody having been in there who didn't belong. I had, a, in those days, a pretty expensive stereo set that was stolen. And the other thing, the odd thing, there was a, a cup of yogurt, half-eaten yogurt on the floor. It never occurred to me that it was the FBI. It, you think about it, and I immediately dismissed it. But I took precautionary measures. That time I didn't cut corners. I went to the city and checked if, I, if there was any surveillance. I couldn't detect anybody. That gave me pretty good confidence that this was a break-in. No indication that I was being investigated. What a sense of invulnerability I had acquired. 
Nothing ever happened to me, nothing dangerous. And the break-in to me was just something uh, I shrugged off. Jack once again traveled back to Moscow. This time, the center was concerned that the break-in might have been more than just a local crime. They considered ending Jack's mission in America altogether. To me, it's not an emergency. Well, we discussed this, and they were really concerned. I mean, they were so concerned that they suggested that I not go back. That's it. Eight years, you're done. They were on the fence. I just felt that I had unfinished business. Jack had created a complicated web of lies on both sides of the Atlantic. He had made up a series of excuses for his trip to Germany and Moscow that allowed him to take time off from work and not appear suspicious. He also came up with a cover story that he hoped Penelope would believe, since he would be gone for six weeks. I was going on a bike tour with some friends cross-country. I was going to be gone for six weeks, totally unavailable. And she thought I, I wasn't coming back at all. When I actually came back and said hello, she cried. Many other women would have smelled a rat in that situation. Jack met up with Gerlinda and Matthias back in Germany, and tensions between the couple were high. Gerlinda had been raising their son like a single mother, and their many years apart had taken a toll on their relationship. This was the most tense situation between her and me. She's had enough. She said, I want you to come back. When? And I sort of weaseled out of it. I think part of the reason is because I really liked the job. I liked my life in the U.S. And I thought I had unfinished business. I really, really wanted to come back with a passport. There was a, an emotional numbness. And, and the other thing that, that happened on that visit, Gerlinda had a nervous breakdown. Started screaming and yelling, and it was really bad. I couldn't take it. Then she calmed down. And we parted with the unstated explicit promise that I would be back in two years because she always knew we talked about 10 years. And I figured this would be the last two years because the KGB was already worried about stuff. I just wanted to come back with a passport. 100% convinced that I would come back. This was not a question. Though Moscow was now deeply concerned for Jack's safety and the growing possibility that he might be caught by the FBI, they finally relented and allowed Jack to continue his mission. But before sending him back to New York, they gave him two specific tasks. First, the center wanted him to steal valuable software code while on the job and send it back to Moscow. I was introduced to somebody from a different department. And this guy was pretty honest. He said, you know, we're, we're, we're suffering. We were falling behind the United States in electronics. See what you can do. We know that you're in computers. Maybe you can find code or hardware and so forth, anything. And so I, I copied some software, source code for some very popular software. One of the things I will not mention ever, the name of the company that owned the software. Jack had successfully completed his first task and now moved on to a new mission that required him to head north to perform a dead drop in New Hampshire. There was somebody who I had not met before came to a meeting with Sergei, and this was really unusual. He asked me if I would be willing to do something that is a bit more dangerous than, you know, it would be out of the ordinary and would put me at a higher risk. He didn't say a word about what it was, nothing. And I said, sure, bring it on. 
that was it. I got the instructions later on in a radiogram to go to Keene, New Hampshire, and find a spot for a dead drop operation that would be suitable for a sizable object to be deposited. Sizable objects such as a, a briefcase or even a suitcase. That's all. That was the entire request at that point. I'm guessing there would have been more down the road. So I got into my beat up old Honda and drove around in New Hampshire and I found a spot that was easy. Gotta be easy to describe for somebody so they can find it. It's gotta be in a location where there's not a lot of people, right? And I found something in a, in a wooded part of an intersection. It was easy and there was a big rock and you could hide something behind the rock. Found it, got back in my car, drove back home. By the time I got out of the vehicle, I was really trembling because no, the car wasn't really meant to drive 600 miles in one sitting. And I sent the uh, description back and that was all she wrote. I never heard back from them. A highly reasonable guess was that they were considering to put a middleman between the Soviet embassy, a KGB agent, and Aldrich Ames, because Ames had direct connections and that made him extremely vulnerable. Aldrich Ames was a former CIA and KGB double agent who was arguably the worst traitor ever caught in CIA history. U.S.-Russian relations were chilled early in the year when the CIA announced one of its top agents was spying for the Soviet Union and then Russia. Aldrich Ames and his wife Rosario were arrested, charged with selling secrets for two and a half million dollars. Ames sold the names of every double agent he knew of, causing the deaths of at least a dozen. Many were executed, imprisoned, or just disappeared. We do not have an exact number. If Ames travels to New Hampshire and I travel to New Hampshire, neither, neither of us is likely to be tailed. And both of us are, are professionals. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Adding to his growing list of risky tasks was a personal one. Now that they were married, Jack promised to help Penelope get her green card. The two headed to the Immigration and Naturalization Services Building, and Jack once again stepped dangerously close to another situation that could put the whole mission in jeopardy. One morning we went to, to downtown Manhattan to line up in the morning at the INS building. It was still dark when we lined up and the line was already around the building and a few couples after us, they shut the door for the day. So whoever was in was going to be processed and all we had to do is just submit our documentation. I was an American, I had a, I had a birth certificate. Nothing was forged. And they will ask you, what does your bedroom look like? I practice with Penelope. The answers need to be the same. It's like the newlywed game, except this one is real. And if, if you're not prepared, 
you fail and, and they will not grant the application. Jack had been in front of the numbing bureaucracy of government and paperwork before, like the time he had tried, unsuccessfully, to secure an American passport. Though they believed they were prepared for any question that might be thrown their way, the couple had one advantage they had not thought about. By the time we were called to the interview, all that practicing wasn't necessary because Penelope was visibly pregnant. She was probably in her fifth month. I mean, she was visibly pregnant. And the interview was real easy. The lady looked at her, she looked at me, she said, you're good. It made the, the application process for the green card easy, but now I had to worry about to take care of that kid. I had a talk with her, and I remember the talk. I was in my place in our bedroom. We were sitting on the bed, and I said to her, listen, as much as I can, I will take care of this child, but I will never be a real father. That was a very hard message. She cried. Even to this day, it's proof to me that I was going to go back, and I wanted to prepare her for that separation. It was black and white. I was going back to Galinda. This was fundamentally immoral, the behavior that I exhibited there. Now, it wasn't purposely done that way, but I maneuvered myself by making little steps that eventually got to a point where there was no return. And the no return was, now I'm going to have a child over here. I didn't really justify it. I just did it. Uh, the justification, if you will, based on an analysis, came much later. How could I live with that? How could I do this? Because I never, in, in my entire life, dated more than one lady at the same time. I was always a very reliable person who was focused on this one lady that he was with at the time. This one was different because I separated my German and American entities to a point where I could actually do this without feeling a lot of guilt. I actually felt none. We stayed together. I made a promise. I said, I was, I'm going to take care of this child. Chelsea was born June 1st in 1987. It was pretty hot in New York on that day. Penelope stayed at my house because we had uh, made arrangements for her to go to the hospital nearest to my house. I had to actually talk her into uh, going to the hospital. Anyway, get to the hospital and we just made it. I drive around, I, I get back in the car because I had the flashers on in front of the hospital. I needed to park the car someplace. It took me about maybe 15, 20 minutes. And as I come back to the hospital, I get to the floor where the expecting mothers had their rooms. I settle down with other expectant fathers in a room where you were allowed to smoke. And so I figured this is going to take a while. Ten minutes later, a nurse comes in. Mr. Barsky, you have a girl. On June 12, 1987, just 11 days after the birth of Jack's daughter, Ronald Reagan delivered the most famous speech of his presidency outside the Brandenburg Gate in West Berlin, Germany. Behind me stands a wall that encircles the free sectors of this city, part of a vast system of barriers that divides the entire continent of Europe. The Berlin Wall, first erected on August 13, 1961, the day Albrecht Dietrich and his family were told to turn around and go home 
was now a symbol of change. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The wall that had separated East and West and became the defining symbol of the Cold War for so many years was now crumbling on a world stage. With so much change on the horizon, where did this leave Jack? His path forward was just as uncertain as the day he first stepped foot in Manhattan nearly a decade earlier. Though it would be another two years before the nearly 12-foot barrier in Berlin would fall, the walls around Jack Barsky felt like they were closing in. Penelope was able to rent a small house pretty far on the outskirts of Queens from somebody she knew for an amount that I could afford. It was like $600 a month. And so she was there with a child, and when I could, I would drive out there and bring the groceries. When it was necessary to go to the doctor, I took, a, took them to the doctor's visit. I followed through on my promises. I said I was going to take care of them, and I did. The first time I really fell in love with this girl, she was still in that house with her mother. She was probably around one year old because she could just stand up. I come to visit and there she stands looking at me through her, she had the biggest eyes and incredibly curly, pretty hair. And she just looked at me from way down there. And then that hit me like, this was, this hit my heart. She didn't say a word, she couldn't talk yet. She just looked at me, and you know, that look spoke volumes. It says, sort of, Dad, I love you, I need you. And that was the beginning of a love affair. Then it came a time when this guy who was renting that house, he wanted her out. Her and I, and a little baby in tow, and we were looking at apartments for Penelope. We must have looked at a number of them, uh, nothing really fit, and then they showed us one, and I, as I'm wandering around in that place, I had, a, I had a brainstorm. This one actually is the solution, because it had one bedroom, one kitchen, one big living room, and one small room off of a hallway, far away from the other rooms. I can do my secret work in that little room, and we can stay here together. It was very practical, uh, and I figured the risk I could take. I could take the risk of cohabitation and still do what I needed to do. And, and again, it was pretty much high risk. I had rules. I said, if I'm in that room, I can't be disturbed because, you know, I did magic with a computer. And, you know, I just needed full concentration, and she never once even knocked on the door. This is now becomes a, a daily thing for me to try to figure out how to take care of this girl because I knew I was going back. So as much as I loved her, I, I was trying to figure out how in the world can I funnel money to Penelope without 
asking the KGB for help. So I was now conflicted because I knew I was going to go back. I knew I might have to go back rather soon because my 10 years were going to be up in the fall. This is where, where it all comes to a head, the, the culmination of what does Barsky do next. There was not a hint that they wanted me back. Hey, time's up, come back. There was not even a hint saying, hey, how about coming back for, for some rest and relaxation and, uh, and debriefing, as we did every two years. Nothing. Into December. The silence from the KGB was unexpected, and all Jack could do was wait for a sign. At the subway stop one cold morning, he finally received the sign in the form of a bright red dot. It was the danger signal. It was a message to leave the country immediately and come back home. Unfazed, Jack kept on his regular commute and headed into Manhattan. I just went on to work. I didn't do any work that day. I was like, just trying to figure out, what do I do, what do I do? And so it was one of the rare occasions when I was not decisive. I usually always made decisions very quickly on the spot. This one, I couldn't make a decision because there was Chelsea. If Chelsea's not there, I'm gone. Penelope doesn't hold me. Nothing, even the job wouldn't hold me. I'm gone. I went back home and uh, on Thursday I would uh, listen to my radiogram. Prepare for urgent departure. We have reason to believe that your cover has been blown. You are in severe danger. Listen on this frequency every day to receive further instructions. Confirm receipt of this message with signal at regular signal location. This is an order. Jack had told the KGB very little about his life in America. He had grown weary of leading a dual life and searched for answers that would lead him in the right direction. And he had no idea if they knew about Penelope or about his daughter Chelsea. Messages kept coming, repeating, every night. Jack remembered his bicycle accident and how he hadn't been able to communicate with the center for those few weeks while he recovered. Jack did not reply. He needed more time to figure out his next move. One day the KGB actually forced the issue. They, they, needed, they needed to know what's going on with me and they knew my way to work. They knew where they could find me if I was still around. So they sent one of the agents, well, I'm waiting on the uh, subway platform, waiting for the train to get me to Manhattan. And it was dark and foggy. And I'm just standing there waiting. And all of a sudden I notice out of the corner of my right eye, there's a man who slowly comes up to me and whispers in my ears, you gotta come home or else you're dead. And then he walks away. Clearly it was now time to act. It was really, really, really close. So now I acted as if I was going to go home. That gave me a little more time, not a lot. I listened to the radio again and there was a, uh, a call for a dead drop operation. They changed the way we were supposed to do this. They were going to give me money and a passport to leave the country straight into Europe. 
I got these instructions uh, for a dead drop operation. This operation was to take place on Staten Island. You couldn't get there easily by public transportation. You would have to do a lot of walking and take a bus. And so I would have to take a car. And I was uncomfortable, you know, in the dark in the car to see whether I'm being followed or not. The day before, I went to a subway station, drove the car to a subway station, parked it there, and came back home. The next morning, I got up really early, and I snuck out of the apartment. I was very careful not to wake them up. I gave Chelsea a kiss because I didn't know if I was going to see her again. And I was pretty emotionally numb. The decision in my mind was not clear. It was really 50-50, and I, I had tried to figure this one out. Go home. What, what do you get? Well, you get to be back with Galinda, who I still loved. We had a nice apartment. She had a nice car. We would have been a really good life in, in East Germany. When they asked me, so when you come back, what, what do you want? And I said, you know, I'd really like a house. I would come back with a hero's welcome. I had received the second highest decoration of the Soviet Union the, the year before. All good, right? Then there was Chelsea. There were like six items on the side of the scale that says, you gotta go. And there was one on the other side and she held the six in abeyance. It was 50-50. With his decision still unresolved and weighing heavily on his mind, Jack headed to Staten Island to retrieve the materials left in the park. As I'm making my way to the, the place where I was going to pick up the container, I had to actually use a flashlight because it was dark. It's the first time we did something in the dark. Now, it was easy to find. It was impossible to go and not find it. It was the entrance to a park. I checked the signal. The signal was there. In other words, the person who was supposed to place the container said, I did it. Go get it. There was a dirt path into the park and a number of steps, I didn't count the steps, but there was a tree that was fallen down and it had a hollow base in it in the trunk and this is where the container was to be placed and it wasn't there. It's just mind-boggling and I, like, I did a double take. I did some more looking around the area just in case somebody put the container a little away from the spot where it was supposed to be couldn't find it. So I walked away defeated. And that's when I made a decision. Next time on The Agent. I really still had some loyalty towards my home country, the East Germany. I knew that they were not treating defectors very well. The second biggest lie that I ever told in my life, I just blocked it out completely. Am I honest about this? Am I really honest? And I always came up with the same answer. The Agent is a production of Imperative Entertainment in association with Windjoy and is created, written, produced, and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. 
Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Joshua Klebe. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.